Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us together once again to study your holy word. We realize that uh, without the help of your Holy Spirit, we could never understand your word, and we would reach wrong conclusions. Therefore, we ask that you will come uh, and be with us through the influence and power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to understand this very important lesson, Earth's Invisible War. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of prayer, and thank you for hearing us, because we ask it in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Okay, did you fill out your lesson for today? Yes. yes. How many of you? Raise your hand if you did the lesson for today. My, my, lots of uh, excellent students, and some naughty ones, too. <laughs> uh, let me underline that it's really important that you answer the lesson before you come to class, because it's impossible for us in class to read all of the verses in the lesson. We'll never finish on time. We would be here two hours if we covered every little detail of the lesson. And so it's of critical importance that uh, you study the lesson before you come. Now, I realize that this is going to take a big investment of time. Uh, it's going to take you probably an hour and a half, two hours to do the lesson. Uh, if you really study the notes and you really uh, look at the context of the verses. And uh, you're also making an investment of time coming here to the seminar. An hour and a half or an hour and 45 minutes each night. By the time you come and by the time you return home. And I want to tell you that I really appreciate you making that investment. And uh, as we go along, you're going to see more and more that it's a blessing to make this investment in time. The more you study the lessons, the more you're going to get out of them. Now, one thing which I failed to mention last night, which I want to mention now, and that is that the first few lessons, you might not understand every little detail of what we're studying. Some things might kind of be a blur. But I assure you that if you stick with it, you continue studying the lessons, you continue coming, suddenly things are going to get clearer and clearer. Until finally, by the time we get to the end of the seminar, uh, your knowledge of Bible prophecy will have increased drastically. And so be patient, just because you didn't understand a certain concept or series of concepts, don't give up. Uh, keep on coming, keep on studying the lessons, and as the lessons go along, uh, they will clarify the previous lessons that you've already studied. So, so just hang in there, study hard, and uh, you know it's kind of like chemistry and physics. Uh, those are difficult subjects. I never liked those subjects. But in the first few classes were misery. But as I went along, you know, it became clearer and clearer and easier to understand. Now let me just review very briefly what we studied last night. Who is the very center of Bible prophecy? Jesus. What are the reasons for Bible prophecy? Does somebody want to raise their hand and give me one reason for Bible prophecy? Yes, Bonnie. Eternal life. To give us eternal life. Yes. What else? Yes? To get closer to Jesus. To get closer to Jesus so that the day star rises in our hearts. What else? There's one or two others. So that when it comes to pass, we might believe. Ah, so when it comes to pass, we might believe. And what else? There's one more. I heard the word. Ah, so that we might have what? Hope. Now, the methods of prophecy. We study five methods. Methods. How many kinds of prophecy do we have? Two. Two. One is called classical prophecy. And the other is called what? 
Oh, apocalyptic prophecy. That's a big word. But uh, basically it means the great prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. And uh, you remember what we studied about those two kinds of prophecy, right? One has already, the classical prophecy has already been fulfilled. It's fulfilled in the future on a larger scale. Apocalyptic prophecy uh, was not fulfilled in the past. It begins to fulfill in the past and it continuously fulfills until it culminates at the setting up of Christ's kingdom. Then we talked about praying for understanding. This is very important, isn't it? Because no prophecy is of any private interpretation. The Holy Spirit gave the Bible, and therefore we must ask for the Holy Spirit's help in order to understand the Bible, especially the prophecies. Then we notice that we should use the historical approach. What is the historical approach? When do the prophecies, the great apocalyptic prophecies, begin to fulfill? In the days when the prophet what? Wrote. And they continuously fulfill point after point, step after step, culminating in the second coming of Christ. In other words, they are like a chain of links all together, one right after another, that culminate at the second coming of Christ. And one prophecy that I did not mention last night uh, is, for example, Matthew 24. If you study Matthew 24, you'll notice that it begins with the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus speaks about the destruction of Jerusalem. But when you get to the end of the prophecy of Matthew 24, it speaks about Jesus coming in the clouds of heaven. And so Matthew 24 begins in the days when disciples lived, and it ends with the setting up of Christ's everlasting kingdom. Now, we also notice that you need to learn to decipher symbols. What will help us to decipher symbols? Do you remember? Two things. Number one, the marginal references. Where do we find the marginal references? In the center of the Bible. Don't pass those up. That's not adornment there. Yes. Marginal, uh, well the word margin means the edges. So the marginal references are the references that are at the edge of the page or in the center of the page. But I, always, I, I found some of them in my Bible not these that Yeah, that's true. And so, it, just because a reference is in, in uh, the margin of the Bible doesn't mean that it necessarily has a connection with the text that you're studying, but they are a big help. Generally, they are connected with the text that you're studying. Once in a while, they'll slip up, but not very often. What is the second method? Use a Bible what? A Bible concordance, yes. Now, we notice that prophecy deals with symbols, right? And you know what a symbol is, correct? I confused some of you last night, see, because I crossed my heart and I had one uh, fist clenched and I had the other one open. And uh, I was told at the end of the class yesterday that love is when you have your fist clenched and uh, rest is when you have your arms, your hands extended. <laughs> Quite a difference between the two, incidentally. But uh, we're dealing with symbols, aren't we? Symbolic language. By the way, when you come to a corner and there's a triangular sign, what does that mean? It means yield. See, it gives you a it's a symbol that gives you a message. Uh, Morse code is that way. There's a certain number of taps, you know, and uh, and those are symbolic of what? Of words, of a message. And uh, we noticed in our lesson that uh, uh, a beast represents what? A kingdom. Waters represent peoples. A woman. See, we're not dealing with a literal woman. What do trees represent? Ah, God's people, yes. Uh, what do weeks or days represent in prophecy? They represent years. 
What does the serpent represent? Satan. How about stars? Ah, angels. Can represent Christ, too. Can represent Satan. Uh, it can represent a kingdom. We notice that symbols are liquid. In other words, they, they not always mean the same thing. They might mean different things in different contexts. Um, and then we also spoke very briefly about studying the organizational pattern of a prophecy. And uh, I'm only going to get into this very, very briefly. What I'm saying here is that a prophecy, uh, or a chapter, rather, of a prophecy, many times repeats the same material more than once. And so it would be a mistake, say, if you want to study Daniel 7, you, you begin at verse 1, and then you read Daniel 7 through verse 28, and you think you have a clear sequence of events, one right after another, in Daniel 7. The fact is that if you study Daniel 7 carefully, and we're going to uh, in lesson number 5 of this series on Thursday night, Lord willing, uh, if you look at Daniel 7 carefully, you'll find that the same material is repeated four times. In other words, Daniel 7 runs in cycles. Verses 1 through 14 are repeated in verses 15 to 17, and uh, some elements are repeated in verse 18, and then there's some other elements that are repeated at the end of the chapter. So it would be a mistake to think that as you read through the verses, each verse is giving you new material. And by the way, the book of Revelation is patterned after, after this uh, manner, organizational pattern. See, the, the churches are repeated in the seals, and the seals are repeated in the trumpets. And the last half of Revelation, as we're going to study, we're going to see that the last half of Revelation repeats and repeats and repeats and repeats the same material over and over again. And so we need to know how the book of Daniel and how the book of Revelation were organized or were structured by John, inspired by the Holy Spirit originally. Are you understanding what I'm saying? And so we have to understand the organizational structure. Now, let's go to tonight's lesson. Some of you know that uh, tonight we're studying my favorite verse in the whole Bible. I've spoken many times on this verse. In fact, the last 20 years approximately, this has been the passion of my life, other than my wife. <laughs> studying Genesis 3 and verse 15. It is a spectacular verse. And uh, we're going to study this verse uh, tonight. Now, let's go to lesson number two. And as I said, we're not going to read all of the verses because we would never get out of here before 10 o'clock tonight. Um, we'll read some of the notes. We'll read some of the verses. That's why it's so important that we all study the lesson before we come. Okay, let's go to the beginning of the lesson. Genesis 1 describes how God created this world in six days. At the conclusion of creation week, we are told that God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was what? It was very good. The question immediately suggests itself. If God made everything very good, then why is the world filled with hatred, violence, sickness, suffering, and death? Bombings in the Middle East. I mean, suicide bombings. Killing so many people. I mean, if God made this world so good, why is there so much evil? Well, in the parable of the sower, Jesus told us the reason. He said, an enemy has done this. And of course, then Jesus identified the enemy as whom? As the devil. 
he says. Now in this lesson we're going to study about this formidable enemy who introduced evil into the world. Now you need to come tomorrow night because tomorrow night is the complement of this lesson. Tomorrow night we're going to talk about where sin originated. See, sin did not start on planet earth. Sin started in heaven. We're going to study tonight about the earthly introduction of sin. But tomorrow, Lord willing, we're going to study about how sin began in heaven. Now let's go to section number one of our lesson. The creator of Genesis 1. Who was the creator in Genesis chapter 1? According to this section that you studied of the lesson. The creator was Jesus. Now you say, how's that? Doesn't the Bible say it was God? Yes, but the Bible says that God is composed of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons. One God. Now the Bible explains that the one of the three who played the active role in creation was none other than Jesus Christ. Let's read only one of the verses that we find in this section. John 1.1. 1, 1, and I want to ask somebody to read John 1.1. 1, 1, and uh, then I want somebody to read that very difficult verse, Genesis 1 verse 1. Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. Who wants to read Genesis 1.1? 1, 1? Bonnie, okay. And then we'll have Al read Genesis, uh, or excuse me, John 1 verses 1 to 3. Okay, let's have Genesis 1 verse 1. God created the heaven and the earth. God created heaven and earth. Three key elements. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. John 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Did you catch the connection between Genesis 1, 1 and John 1, 1 to 3? They have the same elements. Genesis 1, 1 says, in the beginning God created heaven and earth. John 1, 1 to 3 says, in the beginning was the word who was God, and then it says, all things were made by him. So who was the creator in Genesis? It was Jesus. This is of critical importance for our lesson tonight. To realize that the creator in Genesis 1 was Jesus. And of course, Jesus is God. You'll notice question number two, the parable of the sower. Uh, clearly, Jesus says that uh, the one who planted the good seed is whom? The Son of Man. In Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says that all things were created by Jesus. Not only on earth, but also where? In heaven. So the creator was Jesus. That's the first foundational thing that we want to uh, notice in our study tonight. Now let's go to the second section of our lesson. The original condition of man. In their original state of innocence, Adam and Eve were naked and they were not what? They were not ashamed. Now, A question immediately comes up, and it's this. The Bible says that they were naked and they were not ashamed. When they sin, they see that they are what? Naked and they are 
ashamed. So where was the change? They were naked before and they were naked after. Question number two has the answer. Though Adam and Eve wore no artificial garments, they were covered with what? Garments of light. They had no artificial. They had nothing, nothing made of polyester. They had no artificial garments. They were covered with light, like the angels. The angels of light, we call them, right? Revelation 12, the true church is represented by a woman who's clothed with what? With the sun. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 17, that the garments of Jesus were as the sun. So in other words, Adam and Eve were naked with respect to human garments, but they were covered with the glorious light of God. And that's why they were not ashamed. Now notice question number three. Adam and Eve were given what? Do you understand what dominion means? Rulership. In other words, they were placed as king and queen of creation. According to Genesis 1.28, that means that they were to exercise the rulership role over planet Earth. But Adam and Eve needed to choose to obey their creator. Some people wonder why God placed a tree in the Garden of Eden. Why would God place a tree? Because it was necessary for Adam and Eve to choose to serve God. If there was no tree, they wouldn't be choosing to serve God. They wouldn't have any choice. They would have to. But God placed the key, the, the tree, in the garden because it was necessary for Adam and Eve to choose to continue serving God. Are you with me? So the tree really represents the freedom of choice that God gave to Adam and Eve. They had to choose to obey. And if they chose to obey, their garments of light would remain with them. If they chose to disobey, what would happen with their garments of light? Their garments of light would disappear. And we're going to find in a moment that that's exactly what happened. So number four, in order to continue enjoying their blissful life, Adam and Eve needed to what? To choose to obey God. They actively needed to choose. To test their willingness to choose to obey, God placed a what? A tree in the midst of the garden from which they were not to eat. Was this a difficult uh, thing to obey? When Eve ate from the tree, do you think she was hungry? If she was hungry, she could have eaten from any tree in the garden. The issue was not physical hunger or physical appetite because God told them that they could eat from any tree in the garden. There's a bigger issue here. It has to do with choosing to obey God. The first conflict in the Bible is whether we're going to obey God or not. Whether we're going to choose, exercise our freedom of choice to obey God or not. Now notice question number five. If Adam and Eve chose to disobey this one command, they would really be violating every principle of God's Ten Commandments. Because James stated, whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble, in one point he is guilty of all. Now let's stop to reflect on this for a moment. 
When Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, did she actually break every one of the Ten Commandments? Let's reflect on that just for a few moments. Did Eve, I'll go through some of them, did Eve steal? What did she steal? The fruit. Who did the fruit belong to? God. She stole. Did she covet? Tenth commandment says thou shalt not covet. Yeah, she coveted. It says that she desired the tree because it might make her wise. She coveted the fruit. Did she kill? How did she kill? How did she do that? Well, the Bible tells us that because she sinned, she brought death into the world. Are you with me? Did she break the commandment that says thou shalt have no other gods before me? Yes, the devil told her you shall be as God, knowing good and evil. Are you following me? And we could go through every single one of the Ten Commandments. When Eve disobeyed this commandment, she disobeyed them all. Yes. Uh, The fourth commandment, we're going to study that later on, it deals with God as creator. Respecting God as our creator. Did Eve disrespect her creator? Did she want to make did she want to take the place of the creator? She most certainly did. She violated the principle of the fourth commandment, which is the purpose of it is to make a distinction between the creator and the creature. Are you following me or not? Okay, so did Eve and also Adam after her violate every principle of the Ten Commandments? Yes, they did. They most certainly did. Yes. Uh, where? Yes. Okay. How about adultery? The Bible speaks about the relationship between God and His people as marriage. Does He not? What happens when His people go after another lover? What is that called? I'm not talking literally after another lover. What is that called in Scripture when Israel? Found, uh, fell in love with others other than the Lord. Not only idolatry. In Ezekiel 16, it's called adultery. In other words, adultery is having any other husband than God. Spiritually speaking. Because the church is to be the bride of whom? Christ. When the church goes after other lovers, what do you call that? Adultery. Did Eve choose a different lover than God? She most certainly did. She broke the principle of the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Okay, let's go to question number six. Adam and Eve were told that if they sinned, they would what? They would die. What death do you suppose is being spoken about here? The Bible speaks about physical death, and the Bible speaks about spiritual death, and the Bible speaks about everlasting death. It's called second death. Which death is being spoken of here? Just physical death? No. God is saying, you're going to say goodbye to life forever. That's what he's saying. If you choose to disobey my command, in which are contained all of the Ten Commandments, you will surely die. You'll say goodbye to life forever. Now we're going to find that uh, that's not going to happen. But we need to continue studying the lesson in order to understand that. Let's go now to the next section, the entrance of sin. So far so good? Okay. 
the entrance of sin. The central issue at stake in the temptation and the fall of Adam and Eve was the trustworthiness of what? The word of God. God said, don't eat of the tree, because if you eat of the tree, you're going to what? You're going to die. What does the serpent say? You're not going to die. In other words, God is a what? You liar. A liar. You can't trust what God says. Do you know that the, that the controversy in the Bible is very simple? From beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, the conflict is simply over whether you will trust the word of God enough to obey it. That's the issue. From the beginning until the end. That's why we're going to find that in Revelation it says that there's a group of people who keep the commandments of God. There will be a group who keep the commandments of God. Now let's go to question number one under the entrance of sin. The serpent deceived Eve to sin and then Eve became the temptress of Adam. By the way, we see here two ways in which the devil works. The devil can work with you directly or he can, he can recruit people to work with you. See? Eve was tempted directly. Adam was tempted through Eve. In other words, the devil doesn't always tempt us personally. He uses human agents to tempt us and to lead us into sin. That's why we need to be careful about the company we keep. Now, what was the first result of their sin? It says, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. What did they lose? They lost their glorious robes of light and now they were naked. Can you imagine what that must have been like? And of course in the Bible, robes represent what? Righteousness. The Bible says uh, that, that God covers his people with a robe of righteousness. In other words, what had left them? Yes, the light left them, but what did the glorious light that covered them represent? The righteousness of God. And now because they sinned, they had no righteousness. As the Apostle Paul says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I like the way the Spanish version says. It says, todos han pecado y están destituidos de la gloria de Dios. In other words, they've lost the glory of God. I like that. They all have sinned and have lost the glory of God. Question number two. To solve the problem of their nakedness, Adam and Eve did what? They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Who made the coverings? They did. And what were they made of? Fig leaves. Let me ask you this. Even after they covered themselves with the fig leaves, did they still feel naked? <laughs> you know, that's interesting. After this, if you read Genesis 3 carefully, you'll find that, that after they covered themselves with the fig leaves, they still hide from God. And when God comes to talk with them, God says, why did you hide? Adam says, I was afraid because we were naked. But they already have the fig leaves. Obviously, the fig leaves did not cover their what? Their nakedness. In other words, their nakedness was much more than nakedness of body. It was nakedness of soul. 
God could see right through them. They couldn't cover it up. Now, question number three. Sin alienated Adam and Eve from God. They what? They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. What does sin do? Sin separates us from God. It breaks our relationship with God. Do you know what this, this is what the Ten Commandments are all about, folks? Some people don't like to hear about the Ten Commandments. But you know what the Ten Commandments are? They simply describe relationships. Happy relationships. Let me ask you, are a husband and a wife a lot happier if both of them keep the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery? <laughs> huh? Does that commandment protect a relationship? It most certainly does. How about the commandment that says, honor your father and your mother? Does that protect a relationship between parents and children? Sure. How about the commandment that says, thou shalt not steal? Does that protect a relationship? Yeah. It most certainly does. How about the commandment that says, uh, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. See, the reason why God says that is because he doesn't want to have rivals. He doesn't want us to, he doesn't want us to love others. He wants us only to have a love relationship with him. Like a husband and a wife only want to love one another. Are you with me? So the Ten Commandments are not to be looked upon as restrictions. The Ten Commandments are to be looked upon as guarantees of a proper relationship. Amen. If we look at the Ten Commandments that way, then they're not so bad. Because they don't restrict our freedom. What they do is they guarantee happiness of society. Let me ask you, what would the world be like if everybody kept the Ten Commandments? <laughs> would you need any jails? No jails. Would you need any locks on your doors? No locks on your doors. No lawyers. No lawyers have mercy. Thank you very much. <laughs> yes, way back there. Well, what you said earlier about the, uh, the rules, but I'd like to talk to you about that later. Okay. Oh. Yes, uh, Harold. Why are the news telling us? What are they trying to prove? Well, I don't know. You have to ask them. <laughs> Probably they want to be thrifty. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's go to question number four. Genesis 3, 8 to 12, reveals that all psychological problems are due to what? Sin. To sin. Do you believe that? Fear? Is fear a psychological phenomenon? Sir, sure is. How about self-esteem? How about blaming others for our behavior, passing the buck? You know, that's, the, that, that's one of the results of the sin of Adam and Eve. You know, when God came and talked to Eve, she said, she says, the serpent you made. And Adam says, the woman you gave me. <laughs> so the blame game is the fruit of what? Of sin. The fruit of sin. Fear is the fruit of sin. Low self-respect is the fruit of sin. Is shame the fruit of sin? Yes. All of these are the result of sin. Which means that if you're going to solve these problems, you have to solve the problem of sin. 
And if you go to any psychologist that uses gimmicks and doesn't deal with the issue of sin, you're wasting your money. That's why it's better to go to a Christian psychologist. And not even all Christian psychologists are worthy of our trust. You have to deal with the issue of sin if you're going to really solve the psychological problems that people have in the world today. It's amazing. In spite of the tremendous number of psychologists and psychiatrists and self-help courses and uh, grief recovery programs and marriage counseling programs, there's more divorce and there's more unhappiness and there's more people who have mental problems than ever before in the history of the United States. And do you know what the reason is? It's simply because people are not coming to terms with sin. That's it. And in this seminar, we're going to talk about how God deals with the issue of sin. Okay, number five. Yes. Yes, yes, that's right. I'm using that here in this way because that's the way most people use it. I'm using it as people understand it. Uh, but that would be a, a more proper way of saying it, yes. Okay, let's go to number five. The nakedness of Adam and Eve was not primarily one of body, but rather of what? Soul. Of soul. Even after they had covered their physical bodies with garments of fig leaves, they still felt what? Naked. Naked. Their soul was laid bare before God. Did you read Hebrews 4, 12 and 13? Isn't that an interesting passage? It says that the word of God is quick, that means living, and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it penetrates to the parting asunder of the body and the soul, and it goes real deep, you know? And it says that everything is naked before the eyes of he to whom we must render an account. That's what this is talking about. Okay, number six. We're on a roll here. In the Bible, garments represent? Represent what? The white raiment is the what? Is the righteousness of the saints. Actually, it's the righteousness of Christ that the saints have. And what does na what would nakedness nakedness represent then? It would represent the opposite. Being devoid of righteousness, living in sin, in other words. Number seven. By their sin, Adam and Eve lost what? Dominion. Which was taken over by whom? By Satan. Was Satan the rightful uh, ruler of this world when Adam and Eve sinned? Was he the rightful ruler? No. He was a usurper. He stole the rulership function from Adam and Eve. Could Adam and Eve recover the dominion over the world? Could they? No, because when they sinned, their sinful nature became weak and they were at enmity with God, weren't they? So unless somebody came to get the dominion back, they were doomed. It kind of makes me think of the Gulf War in 1991. Good example, so you can understand what we're talking about. Did Saddam Hussein really have a right to have dominion or rulership over Kuwait? No, but did he take it over and for at least for a short period of time take dominion over Kuwait? Was he the rightful ruler? No, he was a usurper. 
Was it necessary for a stronger power to come in to take the dominion away from him to give it back to the original owners? Yes. And so Adam and Eve were the rightful rulers. Satan came in. He took over the rulership function. It was necessary for Jesus to come and take the rulership from Satan so that he could give it back to us. So in other words, they lost dominion. And this is the reason why if you read uh, what we find in Luke chapter 4 verses 5 to 7, on the Mount of Temptation, what does the devil say? He shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and he says, hey, all of these I will give you. Because they have been what? They've been delivered to me. Who delivered them to him? Adam and Eve. He says, all you, have to, you don't have to go to the cross. He's really saying to Jesus, you don't have to die. You don't have to suffer. You know what's coming. I'll give you an easier way. All you have to do just for a little second, you know, you kneel and you bow and then it's all yours. Without suffering, without a cross, it's all yours. That's the real temptation. Okay, notice the note under seven. To Adam and Eve, the future looked gloomy. They had lost their righteousness and dominion over the earth. Could they recover their righteousness? Could they recover their dominion? No. They were at enmity with God, weren't they? They were friends of God before, now they're enemies of God. They were experiencing the psychological phenomena of shame, fear, and strife. And they knew that God's justice required their death. Hadn't God said that if they ate of the tree, they would die? Let me ask you, did God have to keep his promise in order to be true? What if God said, oh, we'll forget it this time? What would the devil have said? Ah, liar! See, God said that if they sinned, they would die. But now he changed his mind. He said, nah, we'll just skip it for this time. God would be proven a liar. Did God have to execute the death penalty against Adam and Eve in order to be true to his word? Absolutely. Now we get come to my favorite verse of all the Bible. Genesis 3.15. Now that we've set the stage, we're ready to, to deal with this verse. After God asked Adam and Eve to render him an account for their actions, he confronted the serpent with the following words. By the way, this he's not talking to a snake. He's not talking to an animal. The serpent is a symbol. Let me ask you, is the devil a serpent? No. Is the devil a seven-headed dragon? No. Do you know tomorrow we're going to study that the devil is, was the most beautiful creature in the whole universe? Other than Jesus, of course. And God, he was the most beautiful creature of God in the universe. He's no monster. He's no seven-headed dragon. But the Bible uses the serpent to symbolize Satan because the serpent is what? Devious. Slithery. Slippery. Sly. See? That's why Jesus said we're supposed to be wise as serpents. Yes, when you least expect it, what happens? They strike. So, so here, yeah, back there. The serpent before sin was the symbolic serpent, or serpent was beautiful before sin. The animal. The animal itself. Yes. So after sin, 
Right. Right. That's what Genesis says. Yeah. So, but, but the devil used the serpent. Yes. But it was beautiful. Yes. How was he able to do that? I, I, in other words, maybe that's a question that can't be answered. Right? <laughs> you know, uh, does the serpent have a choice? No. Animals don't have freedom of choice. <laughs> God is not going to take a dog to ju- judgment for biting you. Uh, and I'm not being facetious the point is that animals have no freedom of choice they're not moral creatures God does not hold them accountable for their actions yes but but when you go to Revelation see the key is you don't stay in Genesis the principle is that you when you have a symbol where do you go to understand that symbol you go to other passages that use the same symbol in Revelation 12, verse 9, says that the ancient serpent is the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. So here, God is not speaking to the serpent. He is speaking to Satan. Although he does say that the serpent who allowed itself to be used by Satan would drag itself along the ground and eat dust. But I can explain uh, the ins and outs of why the serpent, uh, you know, why the serpent was cursed. Maybe it's just to remind us of the reality of sin. Yes. You've asked a question that I don't think can be answered from the text itself. Right. Uh, but the, the important point is that Adam and Eve were free moral creatures, and God held them accountable. And God held Satan accountable as well. He did not become a serpent. He used the serpent as a medium. Are you understanding what I'm saying? In other words, he used the serpent as an intermediary to speak to Eve. Now, you know, all of these questions are academic questions. Uh, Because the key issue is that God is now going to speak to Satan. Uh, There's a lot of these questions that we'll have to ask the Lord in the kingdom uh, for an answer. Uh, Yes, Al? Remember when Jesus cast the devil out of the demoniac? Yes. God allowed them to enter the pig. Yes. So angels are higher beings than humans and animals. Yes. So if God allows them, they have power to enter animals. Oh, sure. They have power to enter human beings if you allow it. So he allowed them to enter the serpent. Sure. The fact is, folks, uh, Genesis, I believe that in Genesis 3.14, God is speaking literally to the serpent, to the animal. In Genesis 3.15, it becomes obvious that he's not talking to the animal. He's talking to Satan. And, uh, and that is the key point that I want us to take a look at. Because um, it's very, very clear from Genesis 3.15 that God is not talking about the serpent as an animal. And by the way, the serpent could fly before uh, sin and the reason we know this is because when the serpent allowed itself to be used by uh, and I said that once again uh, when the serpent was used by Satan uh, God told the serpent from now on you're going to drag yourself on the ground and you're going to eat dust well that wouldn't have been any punishment if he was already dragging himself on the ground and eating dust by the way this would explain the reason why in ancient cultures like, the, like in Egypt, in the pyramids, you find uh, in, in the pyramids illustrations time and again 
of serpents with wings. In all ancient cultures, you find um, illustrations in caves and archaeological discoveries where the serpents have wings. And I believe the reason why is because they're going back to the memory of how the serpent was originally. The oral tradition was passed on from generation to generation, and they knew that the, that the serpent had wings. Okay, now let's go to question number one. God speaks to the enemy. After God asked Adam and Eve to render him an account for their actions, he confronted the serpent with the following words. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And then it says, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now I want to put this on the board so that you can visualize it. There's going to be enmity. And the enmity is going to be between the serpent, and I'll just put S here, between the serpent and whom? And the woman. What does a serpent represent? Satan. What does the woman represent? The church. And there's going to be also enmity between the seed of Satan and the seed of whom? And the seed of the woman. Are you, are you understanding this? I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and whom? And the woman. And between your seed, that is the serpent's seed, and her seed, the woman's seed. In other words, the enmity runs horizontally between seed and seed, and between serpent and woman. But that's not the real enmity. There is enmity. But the real enmity is between whom? The serpent and the seed of a woman. Because the last part of the verse says, he, that is the, the seed of the woman, he will, better translation would be, he will crush your head and you will strike his what? His heel. Now notice the imagery, this is imagery, it's not, the serpent is, he is not, he's not talking to the literal animal right now, he's talking to the devil. He's comparing the devil to a what? To a serpent. Now what would happen if you see a serpent and you raise your foot to stomp on the head of the serpent, what might happen? The serpent might bite your what? Your heel. But then your foot comes down and does what? It crushes his head. Now let me ask you a dumb question. What happens first? Does the seed crush the head of the serpent first? Or does the serpent strike the heel of the seed first? Well, that's a dumb question because if the seed crushes the head of the serpent first, how could the serpent strike his heel? That's right, he can't bite no more. What this verse is saying, folks, God is saying to, to Satan, and by the way, Revelation 12 says that the ancient serpent is the devil and Satan. We need to allow the Bible to explain itself. He's not talking to the animal. He's talking to Satan. He's saying to Satan, I'm going to send a seed to the world. And that seed is going to do battle with you. 
in the process of the battle, you're going to strike his heel. You're going to hurt his heel. But it's going to be expensive because he's going to crush your head. Are you following me? How do you suppose the devil felt when he heard those words? He must have trembled. Was God telling him that his existence, that he was going to be blotted out from existence? Yes. If you want to kill a serpent, how do you kill a serpent? You cut off his tail. The only way that you can really kill a serpent is to crush its head. God is saying that the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. That is of Satan. Now let's go to page number three. Who is the serpent? Question number two. The ancient serpent, whom? The devil and Satan. God is telling Satan, you turned the human race against me and have made them my enemies. But I'm going to send a seed to the world who will do battle with you. In the process of the battle, you will be successful in striking his heel, but he's going to crush your head. These words, if you look at the context, were heard by Adam and Eve. They must have brought great comfort and hope to Adam and Eve. Because they were hearing God say that there was going to be one who would come to what? To do battle with the serpent and was going to overcome the serpent was going to overcome the tempter. Who is represented by the woman? Well, in Jeremiah 6 verse 2, it says, I have likened the daughter of Zion to a lovely and delicate woman. See, Zion is God's Old Testament church, isn't it? God's Old Testament people. And Jeremiah says that God compares Zion, his Old Testament church, to a woman. And so the woman here would represent whom? The church. And in a moment we'll come back to that. We need to qualify that. But for now, just recognize that we're dealing here with the church. Now the question is, who is the seed of this woman? Who is the seed of this woman? Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, who is Christ? Who is the seed of the woman? Christ. I don't know about you, but don't you think it's amazing that about 6,000 years ago, God already predicted how Satan was going to be defeated? Because these words are being spoken about 6,000 years ago. They're being written by Moses about 1,500 years B.C., which would put us at approximately 3,500 years ago when they were written. But they were spoken around 6,000 years ago. And God is already saying that the hope of the human race is found in whom? In Jesus, crushing the head of the serpent. By the way, did you notice in Genesis 3.15, it says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And then it says, He shall crush your head. Normally, if it was speaking about, this, uh, about uh, just a common ordinary seed that we plant in a garden, it would say what? It. 
But Genesis is telling us that this seed is a he. No offense, women. Now, question number six. From where and when did this seed come? But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. You see, he's the seed of the woman because he was born of a woman. And by the way, when we say he was born of the woman, we know that he was born from Mary, a literal woman. But we also know that Jesus was born from the Old Testament church because he's the lineage of Abraham, who is the founder of the Jewish nation, and he's also the lineage of David. Are you following me or not? So the woman is more than Mary. The woman represents, and we'll study this uh, in lesson number 6, where we deal with Revelation 12, uh, the woman actually represents the whole Old Testament church the children of Israel from whom Jesus is born. Although he was born from a literal woman, of course. In the second half of uh, point number six, and speaking of the birth of Jesus, we are told in Revelation 12, 5, and she, that is the woman, bore a male child. You know, that's not the best translation. Do you know what it says in the Greek? The New Testament was written in Greek. It says, she bore a male son. Does anybody know a son who's not male? <laughs> what is God trying to say here when he says a male son? He's trying to say that this is the same he of Genesis 3.15. This is the man who would be born of who? Of the woman. To crush the head of who? To crush the head of Satan. But let me ask you, who created every single human being that has ever lived on planet Earth? We already studied this. Now you're going to see why I put that first in the lesson. Who created every single person in this world? Jesus. Jesus. Now you might be saying, Jesus didn't create me, I came from my mother. And I would ask you, who created your mother? Well, she came from her mother. Okay? And um, who did her mother come from? Well, from her mother. If you go back far enough, where do you end up? With Adam and Eve. Now listen, when Jesus created Adam and Eve, in them, he created the whole human race. And listen to what I'm going to say. Critical importance. There was no creature in the world that could have died for the whole human race except he who created the whole human race. Only the one who made all could give his life for all. Are you with me? That's why an angel could not give his life. An angel probably could give his life for another angel. Or one human for another human, a life for a life. But only he who made everyone could offer his life for everyone. And so the seed of the woman was going to come to offer his what? His life. And this is our next section. We reach the climax now. In Genesis 2.17, God promised Adam and Eve that if they sinned, they would what? They would die. Did God have to 
fulfill his word? Did he have to keep his promise that they would die? Yes, he did. But now God was between a rock and a hard place. To use a proverb that we all know, listen to what the devil said. God, obviously I'm dramatizing it so that you can understand for effect. The devil said, God, you said that if Adam and Eve ate of the tree, they would die. If you don't execute the sentence, you're not true and you're not just because justice demands that they be punished with death. But then the devil says, but if you punish them with death, how could a God of love do that? Are you with me? The devil places an apparent conflict between the love and the justice of God. If you punish man, you don't love him. But if you don't punish him, you're not just. How could God solve this problem? Jesus. Notice question number two. Are Adam and Eve naked at this point still? What are they covered with at this point? Fig leaves. Are they still naked? Do they still feel naked? Can God see right through them? <laughs> to use the expression, they can see beyond those fig leaves. <laughs> They're not hiding anything. In fact, it's interesting. You know, there's so many dimensions that we could study about this. Uh, God actually does an investigation of the case. Very interesting. You know, God comes and says to Eve, says to man, where are you? God didn't know where they were, did he? Oh, so why does he ask? Then he says to Eve, what have you done? Oh, God didn't know what, the, what she had done. If you look at Genesis 3, you'll find that there are three steps that God takes. Number one, he does an investigation of the case at hand. Point number two, he pronounces the sentence. And point number three, he executes the sentence. Is that the same kind of jurisprudence that we use today in a court of law? Now, let's go to question number two. This is a fantastic verse. Before I read this, let me ask you, when did God say that Adam and Eve would die if they ate from the tree? The day you eat of the tree, you will what? Die. The very day. Did they die that very day? I know, that's the argument. Well, he started dying. God didn't say the day that you eat thereof, you're going to start to die. God says the day that you eat of the tree, you will surely die. The question is, why didn't they die that day? Ah, here comes the answer. Genesis 3.21 describes how man's spiritual nakedness would be covered. And what? And for Adam. What does that indicate? For Adam. Somebody else is doing it. And for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made what? Tunics. You know what tunics are? Garments of what? Of polyester. <laughs> of silk. No, he made garments of what? Of skins. 
and clothed them. What needed to happen in order to get those skins? Let's read the note. In order to get the skins of animals, it was necessary for them to be sacrificed. By the way, this same word skins is used over 50 times in the book of Leviticus to speak about the skins of the animals that the priests sacrificed in the temple. So this is talking about animal skins. The Hebrew word deals with animal skins. The sacrifice of animals in the Old Testament represented the death of whom? Of Jesus. Was there a death that very day? Was the death sentence executed that day? Yes, it was executed. But who died? Two lambs. What did those lambs represent? Jesus. You see, Genesis 3 is not only saying us that Christ is going to crush the head of Satan, but he's telling us how he's going to crush his head. He's going to crush his head by dying. Are you with me? Yes? He's going to cover their nakedness, the nakedness of soul. Their unrighteousness is going to be covered by his righteousness. And how do we get that righteousness to cover our nakedness? Through the death. Isn't this wonderful news? And by the way, this is the reason why 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 18 to 20 says that Jesus was foreordained to die from the foundation of the world. In other words, Jesus actually, in Revelation 13 verse 8, it says that Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world. Now you say, now how was Jesus slain from the foundation of the world? He was slain from the foundation of the world in promise. Is this a word picture that God is giving about something that's going to happen in the future? The sacrifice of the animal? Yes, God is saying, listen, the way I'm going to crush the head of the serpent and I'm going to garb you once again with my righteousness is by the death of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That must have been good news for Adam and Eve. Now notice, by his death, Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. He reconciled us to God. Didn't he? Did you read those verses? He has reconciled us, it says in Romans 5 verse 10. Did he recover the lost dominion? Yes, Jesus said, now I'm going to cast the prince of this world out. And then it says, and if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. He recovers the dominion of the world. Does Jesus pay our death penalty? Yes. Do we have any reason to fear? No. We have no reason to fear. We have no reason to have all these psychological phenomena taking place in our lives if we had Jesus. And by the way, Jesus also answered the apparent dilemma that God put, that Satan put God in. Remember Satan said, if you punish man, you don't love him. But if you don't punish him, you're not just. Did Jesus pay for every sin that has ever been committed, is being committed, or will be committed by human beings on planet Earth? Was the justice of God totally and completely satisfied? Yes, because Jesus paid it all. But did God show his love by himself paying it so that we don't have to pay? See, this is the beautiful thing. The cross reconciles the justice and and the love and the mercy of God. Because sin is punished. The justice of God is executed upon Jesus. 
but we don't have to suffer it. So God shows his justice and he also shows his love. Now, let's go quickly to the last section. And by the way, I knew I wasn't going to be able to finish because there's so much material here and I've only given you about 10% of what we really have here. It's tremendous. When you read carefully what we find in Genesis 3, it, it, it's powerful and it's amplified in later portions of Scripture. But that's the reason why I gave you the extra sheet tonight. Please, for tomorrow, don't only answer lesson number three, but read those two pages. It's actually on one sheet, both sides. Let me just give you an inkling of what's happening. Let's go. Satan's incessant warfare. The story of Cain and Abel reveals that early on, Satan suspected that Abel might be the promised seed. You suppose the devil wanted that seed to come? Why wouldn't he want him to come? Listen, folks, his very existence was at play, wasn't it? See, after the devil heard these words, he says, I cannot allow that seed to come. And so the devil is going to try to destroy the seeds which will lead to the seed because in the Old Testament, God has a holy lineage. Are you understanding what I'm saying? God develops a holy line from which the Messiah will eventually come. And so what the devil says is if I can get rid of the holy line, then there will be no seed. There will be no Messiah. No Messiah. And the devil tries to destroy the lineage or the genealogy of Christ in two ways. He tries to kill it sometimes, like in the days of Esther. He tried to annihilate the Jewish nation. And so for all, he hated, they hated the Jews. Listen, folks, the story of the Old Testament is not the hatred of the nations against the Jews. It's the hatred of the nations and of Satan against the Messiah of the Jews. See, we need to understand that the Old Testament is not Israel-centered. The Messiah is, the, the Old Testament is Messiah-centered. The reason why the devil tries to destroy Israel is because Messiah will come from Israel. Prophecy is centered in whom? In Jesus, not in Israel. Is it just perhaps true that most Christians are looking in the wrong place for the fulfillment of prophecy? And they're presenting a Christless perspective of Bible prophecy. I only throw that out. We're going to talk about this issue. You say, can't be, couldn't be. Impossible, preposterous. You know what's amazing? When Jesus came to this world, almost every single person who claimed to be, to be expecting the Messiah was not expecting him. Because they totally twisted the prophecies that pointed to Jesus. Of course, that could never happen before the second coming of Jesus with those who claimed to serve Jesus. Could it? Could it just be possible that the majority of the Christian world is looking in the wrong place for the fulfillment of prophecy? I throw that out. We're going to study these things in the seminar as we go along. They're life and death matters. So what does the devil do? He uses Cain to kill Abel. He says, no more seed. But what does God do? He gives Eve another seed, if you read that verse, another seed instead of Abel, who was killed by Cain. God's plan continues. Now you can read the rest of the, let's just go through the questions very quickly here. Question number three, 
when Jesus was born into the world, the dragon tried to what? To devour, to kill him as soon as he was what? He was born. See, he couldn't keep him from coming, but when he's born into the world, he says, I'm going to nip this in the bud. <laughs> Before he's able to go to the cross and suffer the penalty for man, I'm going to nip it in the bud. He's going to die when he's born. And by the way, well, let me finish and then I'll come back to this. Uh, let's go to number four quickly. When Jesus was born, King Herod had all male children two years and under slaughtered. Who do you suppose was behind this? Why would Satan be behind it? Because he knew that this was the seed who was going to crush his head. Are you following me? See, the hatred is between, the controversy is between Christ and Satan. And then, of course, anybody who joins Christ and anybody who joins Satan, they're enemies too. Because they have the spirit of the leader whom they adopt. Number five, when the male child ascended to God into his throne, whom did the serpent persecute? The woman. He says, the seed got away, so I'm going after the woman. And the last question, who will he go against at the end of time? The remnant of the woman's seed. The very last segment of the woman's seed. He's going to go after them. Because he was not able to get rid of Jesus, now he, the Bible says that he has descended with great wrath trying to destroy as many as he can because he knows that his time is short. Let me just mention this in closing. If you just read Matthew 2, verse 16, which is in our lesson, it says there, when the wise men did not return to Jerusalem to tell Herod where Jesus was, Herod was filled with fury and he had all the children, two years and under, killed. If you had only the story of Matthew... Who would the nasty figure be? Herod. But when you go to Revelation 12, the curtain is opened and you look behind the scenes to the one who used Herod to try and destroy Jesus. I conclude with this, folks. We have to read the events in this world with enlightened eyes. Because what's happening in this world, the visible events in this world are only shadows of movements behind the scenes. And we have to know why these visible events are taking place. The real reason is in the invisible world that we can't see. That's why we need to study prophecy because prophecy Cast the veil aside and helps us to see behind the scenes who is behind all of these things. So we have real exciting things to study ahead. Did you enjoy the study tonight? Yes. Isn't this a marvelous verse? Yes. Now tomorrow night, Lord willing, we're going to uh, course study the origin of sin in heaven. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. I was going to have a quiz, but it's too late. Do you want to have a quiz? Yes. No, too late. <laughs> I promise you tomorrow we'll have a quiz because tomorrow's lesson is not as long as tonight's lesson. Are you going to all answer your lesson? Yes. yes. Okay, very good. Please bring it answered. You'll get so much more out of it if you do. Remember when you go out, you can pick up tapes in the back uh, if you're interested. I don't know if we made enough. 
it's hard to tell opening night, uh, and I mean the second night, how many people are going to want tapes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you because you've given us this marvelous verse in your holy word. We thank you that in spite of, of the fact that Adam and Eve sinned, and after them every single human being has sinned, that you have not left us without hope. We thank you because you gave us Jesus to pay our penalty, to reveal the love of God. I pray, Lord, that if there's anybody here tonight who has not given his or her life to Jesus, they might do so at this very moment. We thank you for having been with us. Thank you for answering our prayer because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.